0: Hey, if you're, if you're jumping in late, my name's J.D. Mangrum. I get to be the pastor of Christ Church, Charles Sound. And we're about to jump into week two of our series, Who's My Neighbor? If you wouldn't mind, uh, I don't normally do this, but I'm gonna pray today because I have a thousand thoughts swimming around in my head, uh, things I believe God wants to say. I wanna make sure that we get the right ones out in a timely manner this morning. So God, will you please speak uh, through me? You've spoken to me over the years through this parable. During the course of the last couple of months, certainly in our culture, thinking about this parable in the last month of preparing for this series and this message, will you speak through us today? We're listening. God, I pray more than what I say, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in week two of this series, Who's My Neighbor, uh, walking through the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're trying to understand uh, and see how to be the best neighbors that we can, how to be godly neighbors, the neighbors that God would have us be in a city, in a pandemic, in an election cycle, in a moment of uh, social unrest in a lot of ways uh, as we follow Jesus. So I'm so glad you're here. Uh, we're literally all kind of a work in progress. And because of that, the series has three parts to it. Sundays at 10 on Facebook Live. And then there's a small group that meets on Tuesday nights at 6 p.m. on the Art of Neighboring. You can still jump in on that if you want to. And then we're also keeping a small notebook, encouraging everyone to keep a small notebook listing all the neighbors that you know. The truth is you can't love people that you don't know. So how many people have you already listed in that notebook? How many people do you know who live in Charlestown? Or how many people do you know by name in Christchurch, Charlestown? Or maybe how many people in your community uh, that you know if you don't live here in this neighborhood. It was so cool this week to talk with Nikki McGeehee as she was working at the farmer's market, just listing the names of people that she was meeting. We're not gonna ask her or anybody else to invite anyone to Thanksgiving dinner, or ask somebody if they're going to heaven or hell, just wanting to see who we know, um, and 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 know a bunch of neighbors so that we can know how to love them very specifically and very well. Now last week as we jumped into the parable we talked about the context of the parable. We talked about how the, the parable came out of this conversation between Jesus and this sort of biblical lawyer of this legal uh, scholar who understood Jewish law and it wasn't really a conversation. It was more like the sort of smug lawyer was trying to trap Jesus and, uh, and he asked Jesus what's the most important important command. Jesus kind of turned it on him and said, well, what do you think it is? And we'll read it in a moment. Essentially, it boiled down to the fact that the greatest command is one command that has three applications. You should love God, love your neighbor, love yourself in that order. And Jesus tells the guy, he says, you got to do those things perfectly. Now you got to get it right and get it right and get it right and get it right. And rather than beg for mercy, the guy says, well, who's my neighbor? In other words, like, who am I bound to have to love, and who can I ignore or even hate very passively or passive aggressively and And Jesus is wanting him to get to the understanding that God loves everyone, and so the question's not who does he have to love, but the question should be, what would it look like to love? And so with that said, we're going to dive into the parable. I've wrestled all week with how to start this message. I usually kind of try to tell a story from history or some local politics. Man, I'll tell you, this week started out pretty rough. We were looking out the window Monday when a neighbor uh, who was actually out running was hit by a person kind of driving down the street right out of our window. We had a tough weekend as we heard that one of our neighbors who we knew very casually, but we also knew she had some real struggles, had passed away. In the past few days and uh, it was kind of a heavy weekend, honestly. And what buoyed us, what encouraged us was our neighbors. It was some of you. It was our neighbor below us, our little two-year-old neighbor coming in and she was showing me her bracelet and telling me about her trip that she had taken to Maine along with her mom and dad as we were all standing there in the garage. I was encouraged by a friend who uh, has is pretty openly skeptical of Christianity, but, but tuned in last Sunday to the message and texted me and said, hey, I really like the service. I liked song one by Nick, Mormon song two, and I liked what you said about this in the sermon. So encouraging, like in the midst of the heaviness of life, neighbor love totally encouraged me. It lifted me up in a moment when I was kind of feeling down at the beginning of the week. For you, who lifts you up? Who Who's someone even this week who went out of their way to lift you up? Now, yeah. Um, today we're going to talk about three philosophies of life, including a lifestyle of lifting people up. And we're going to focus the lens and focus the lens and focus the lens until we get a really clear picture of what it individually looks like for us to love our neighbor and then corporately as a church, how God is specifically calling us to love our neighbor. If you got a Bible, turn to Luke 10. Remember, Jesus is in the Galilee. It's in northern Israel. We'll put it up on a map right here. And he's soon heading to Judea and southern Israel to be arrested and crucified and killed and, and then resurrected three Jewish days later. And between the two regions lies the region of Samaria, the area. It was an area and a group of people that Jews totally hated. They saw them as half Jewish, half pagan. They were an ethnic group who the Jews saw as religiously and morally and kind of socially and racially compromised. As I shared with you last week, we've kind of romanticized this parable of the Good Samaritan, but if we were telling this thing mod- like in modern terms, we would say this is the parable of the good Ku Klux Klan member, or the good militant Antifa leader, or the good homophobe, or we'd say this is the parable of the good militant trans activist, or this is the good terrorist, or the good uh, angry religious fundamentalist, or... Even better, we just said this would be the parable of the good neighbor with the uncomfortable yard sign. Because we've all seen that. That neighbor who makes you uncomfortable, who you kind of want to avoid, and yet they're there. And in a moment, they turn out to do something good. Now remember, as the people are hearing Jesus tell this, Jesus is going to tell the story about robbers and priests and Levites and Samaritans and they would think they would hear Samaritan and think bad guy They would also hear priest and Levite and think good guys. These are the good guys These are the descendants of Levi. They're the temple employees. They're from the right family with the right moral job They're the the preachers and the pastors. They're at the sort of top of the Jewish moral religious pyramid scheme and so just know that as we jump into Luke 10 beginning in verse 25 where I'm going to read Where we read last week and then continue on and behold a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test saying teacher What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him what's written in the law? What's written in the first five books of the Bible? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered and said you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your strength and with all your mind And your neighbor is yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who's my neighbor? Jesus replied, and begins with the parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, that hated race of people as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. We'll stop there for today. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, literally, literally. uh, Jerusalem sits at 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho, which is 17 miles away, sits at, 800 feet below sea level, quite the topographical descent, if you will. And so it's quite literal. And There were only two reasons that a good Jew or a good Palestinian in the first century would actually go to Jericho. Here they are. One, a good Jew might go to Jericho because he was going from Jerusalem, remember, to avoid Samaria, over down to Jericho and then across the Jordan River up uh, to avoid Samaria and then over into the Galilee, so a good Jew would go down from Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, presumably often they may do that like because they had gone to Jerusalem for a festival, which would be an expensive endeavor. it would cost money and uh time to go down there so you could presume that this traveler these travelers would have money the second group that would go would be friends of king herod you see king herod the great had taken you know his he had made his winter palace in jericho actually there were three palaces There are also stadiums and arenas and all of these theaters and this stuff and it becomes sort of a winter resort town of first century Palestine and so people who had the favor of Herod might go over to uh, Jericho to spend time there. Again, these will be influential and presumably wealthy people who would spend time and so because of this people would hide out in the crags and in the rocks and caves and as these wealthy people passed by going down trying to keep their footing they would jump out and attack uh, passers by and this scene happened This scene in the story was not irregular jesus's audience would hear this and go yeah we've we've seen that we've seen people actually left for dead we've seen people killed on the side of the highway and they would say man we've prayed over and over in our life that this would never happen to us you know i had a similar experience one time nat and i were driving from Georgia to Toronto via Detroit. You cross over Detroit into Windsor, Ontario, and it's a four hour drive over to Toronto. It was in the winter. This was before really good GPS and good cell phone service. And we knew we had to be on this one highway for a long time. I just remember praying, God, please don't let me break down because there is nothing between Windsor and Toronto. And I just thought, Man, some angry Canadian is going to kidnap us if we break down, and they're going to apologize us to death and make us eat poutine uh, until we get our ransom paid to get free. I was nervous going through Canada, probably the least intimidating place on earth. I can't imagine what these people would be feeling as they heard this story, where they could be in real uh, danger. So. Jesus says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he falls into the hands of robbers, stripped, beaten, uh, robbed, and left on the side of the road for debt. says, but by chance, um, and Luke is saying this, and it's like it's by chance, but it's not really by chance, a priest comes down the road, heading from Jerusalem, either back to the Galilee, avoiding Samaria, or possibly down to Herod's palaces, having become an insider with the political establishment, we don't know. And, and frankly, it really doesn't matter why he was passing by. That's not the point of the story. The point is that he saw a situation where there was another human being in need and he chose not to do anything. He passed this guy up rather than show uh, compassion and helping. The lawyer would hear this and, and still think, good guy, he'd probably be a little surprised that this guy had passed up this victim, the Levite, Think an assistant to the priest. The lawyer would hear that, and again, he would be surprised to hear of this man passing him up while in need. Both the good guys and culture passed up a chance to show compassion and extend some mercy. Immediately, here we have two philosophies of life. The first is seen in the robbers. The first philosophy of life is to beat people up. Monday night, a guy, uh, we've taken the boys to the Little League, and a guy uh, angrily spit on my car as I drove by him, honestly, for no reason. And without provocation, uh, with that small action, he violated my space and my stuff. He, He attempted to beat me up without fists. And we see this in our angry society. That's the day we live in. People beat one another up with words, sometimes to our face, sometimes behind our backs, with actions, with thoughts, with attitudes, with fingers and phones and with social media accounts. The one who beats another up may be the racist, the homophobe, the militant activist, the physically or emotionally abusive husband or parent and that is never okay. It may be the drug dealer, the Twitter troll, the gossip, the bully, so on and so on. We can all envision these bullies and robbers and before we start thinking about politicians and celebrities and cultural dirtbags or any other them, Honestly we need to ask ourselves a very uh, real question how do i beat people up how do i beat people up with my words thoughts actions attitudes where do i act like the robber the second philosophy of life seen here is in the priest and levites so that we don't beat people up we we pass people up and we're coming to see in our culture thank god that it's not okay not to just be not racist we need to be anti-racist we don't just need to be unloving we've got to begin to be loving when we see wrong and injustice we've got to begin to speak up this george floyd moment in our culture has given us a real opportunity to begin to see that being just not racist isn't enough we've got to be anti-racist but that plays out in a hundred other areas of life as well. To see injustice and do nothing is to pass people up and there's all kinds of injustice. Listen, lives matter. They matter to God, they matter to Jesus, they matter to us. We can't act on all of it, but we need to act where we can and where the spirit nudges and when the cultural moment pushes toward it, we need to respond. And We certainly can't love God and love our neighbor and do nothing. We pass people up when we see and do nothing about racial injustice or unkindness shown to our neighbors and the LGBTQ community, lack of concern for immigrants, disregard for the unborn, unkindness shown, uh, and marginalization of the poor and economically vulnerable, those suffering with addictions or mental, emotional issues, the abused, Humans being trafficked or enslaved like never before in human history, like never before. Go read the statistics. Christians and other religious groups persecuted around the globe and not just knowing our actual neighbors because of busyness or indifference. Our evangelism and concern for people's eternity loses all credibility if we aren't actively pursuing the well being of lives here and now. We cannot see these situations of people and cross the street as if nothing is going on. Let me read that to you again and put it up as a slide. Our evangelism and concern for people's eternity loses all credibility if we aren't actively pursuing the well-being of lives here and now. Which leads to the third philosophy of life seen in the Samaritan. Now remember the lawyer, would have heard this story, he would grimace thinking, here's the bad guy, here's the jerk who doesn't love God and will kill this guy off. Wish the beating and robbing could (laughs) have happened to him. The third philosophy of life is to lift people up. See, we can beat people up, we can pass people up, or we can lift people up. The Samaritan saw this guy, felt compassion, and as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, he even went to him and helped him at great personal cost to himself. Beat people up, pass people up, or lift people up. For God's people, the choice of which we should live out is clear. The trick's figuring out how we should live out lifting others up. Here's the truth. Here's the big idea of today's message, if we can. Just because something isn't my fault doesn't mean it isn't my responsibility. Just because something isn't your fault doesn't mean it isn't your responsibility. Just because something isn't our collective fault doesn't mean it isn't our responsibility. Though I may not have caused the brokenness, when I see brokenness, I am to respond in action as a Christian. I shut down gossip. I expose sinful thinking in myself and lovingly, kindly, and humbly in others. I fight for those who can't defend themselves. I bring shalom. Shalom's the Hebrew word for peace, but it's more than the absence of conflict. You see, shalom is like returning to Eden or seeing the last chapter of Revelation. It's when all things are right between God and man. And as Christians, Christ followers, we are to be agents of shalom. Jesus' prayer and the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are living that out and as best we can, we're ushering in shalom in our actions and in how we lift people up. To share the gospel with our words and lives so there's alignment is to be a messenger of shalom. When you see something wrong and you take responsibility for it, you work at fixing it in the name of Jesus, you're bringing shalom. Just because something isn't your fault doesn't mean it's not your responsibility. It's true for you, it's true for me. It's true for us as a church and as a community of Christians in Boston. So, what do we need to do with this portion of the passage uh, honestly here's a, here's just a few things uh things like thoughts observations focusing, the lens, things I've been learning over the past few weeks. One, I'm not going to say it all today with regards to justice and and lifting people up. So I'm going to need you to show me some grace uh, from this message, if you don't mind. I'm a work in progress, and I have a ton of blind spots and a ton of sins. I confess that I need Jesus. Too often in my life, when I've heard this parable, frankly, I've thought of myself as the Samaritan, the hero of the story, when, in fact, I've far more often been the one who has been robbed or beaten up, and probably much, much more than that, I've been the robber or the Levite and priest, beating people up or passing people up. And God, Jesus, over and over to me has been the Samaritan who showed me grace that I hadn't earned or deserved when I was helpless on the side of the road. I need mercy from God, and I need mercy from you over and over. Thus, I'm so grateful for salvation by grace through faith, and I'm thankful for the church. We need one another. I want to tell you though, I'm listening and trying to learn, I'm trying to learn from people of color and from women, from same-sex attracted people, from people with challenges and addictions and anxieties. I have a lot to learn. You have a lot to teach me. Uh, Honestly, I I really believe God has blessed me and that I have things that I am able to teach you. And even though we could tap out in this moment, everybody could kind of go to our own corners and cultural echo chambers, I believe we need one another. Let me say personally a real thank you to our African-American members of our church community for your wisdom, your perspective, your, your prayers, your lament, your witness to us during this time, your witness to me during this time. I thank God for you, and we thank God for you. Second thing I want to say and I want to be really I want to be really careful clear here. I'm thankful you can pause this and rewind and hear it again later if you need to. Let me say that cancel culture, which I'll define it is the popular practice of withdrawing support for canceling public fic, uh, figures and companies after they have done or said something considered objectionable or offensive, generally performed on social media in the form of group shaming. Cancel culture is bullying and it is alienating because of accused, imagined, or sometimes actual sins. Virtue signaling, this is another word in our culture right now, occurs when someone shares a point of view on a social or political issue, often on social media, to garner praise or acknowledgement of his or her righteousness from others who share that point of view, to passively rebuke those who do not. Or, I would add, to avoid the ire or backlash of self-professed woke people looking for someone to cancel. Cancel culture is anti-gospel, Cancel culture is anti-Jesus. Jesus Jesus never canceled anybody, thank God. Cancel culture is beating people up like the robbers, seeking to do harm. Likewise, I would say virtue signaling is anti-gospel. Jesus never signaled virtue. He exhibited virtue. Virtue was real. It wasn't some mask he put on to pretend virtue. Virtue. Virtue signaling is passing people up, like the priest or Levite, while seeking to appear helpful and neighborly and like the Samaritan. Because they aren't gracious, authentic, or rooted in love or self-sacrifice, but rather arrogance or fear, I would argue that cancel culture and virtue signaling around any justice issue are fiercely anti-gospel and contrary to the character of Jesus. Third thing, let me say, biblical aim is our Uh, Biblical justice is our aim, lifting people up because of the Bible, the gospel. I'll refer to justice in this conversation as biblical justice because for followers of Christ, the Bible, not the spirit of this age, is to be our measuring stick for justice as well as all of life. This isn't to marginalize the term social justice. Don't hear what I'm not saying. If people say social justice, I don't think that's bad. I know a lot of us use it. I've used it a thousand times, especially in the last few weeks. And as believers using it, I think we actually mean biblical justice normally. I just want to be really clear today with everything. The Samaritan, not the religious professionals, practiced biblical justice and neighbor love that day. Look, we don't treat the Bible like a weapon to wield, to bully anyone. We use the Bible as a light to guide us from darkness to the light of truth. A spiritual CPR, the Bible's a spiritual CPR to jerk us from death and sin to life in Christ. And it's a liberator and an emancipation proclamation rescuing us from oppression to freedom, thriving and shalom. When we say biblical justice, We can freely say, this isn't my fault, but it is my responsibility. Tony Evans has said that biblical justice seeks to protect individual liberty while promoting personal responsibility. It's the equitable and impartial application of the rule of God's moral law in society. The aim of biblical justice, he goes on and says, is the... Um, is freedom, a release from illegitimate bondage in order to make the choice to exercise responsibility and actualizing and maximizing all you are created to be. Biblical justice encourages freedom through affirming accountability, equality, and responsibility by linking the spiritual to the social realm. That is freedom, and biblical justice must be founded upon spiritual truth from our vertical relationship with God and expressed in our horizontal relationship with each other. In other words, he concluded biblical justice is all about loving God and loving others. We're aiming at biblical justice. And I'll be honest, as a white Protestant man in America, I don't get to set the definition always of exactly what is fair and exactly what is equal. When I do that, I take the position of the robber, the Levite or the priest. We need to be listening to one another and make sure that everyone is being held accountable, being called to freedom and to liberation in and through and because of the gospel. Number four, just because something isn't my fault doesn't mean it isn't my responsibility plays out in a hundred different areas, not just race. Christians need to be biblical justice warriors with regard to race right now, right now. Care for the elderly also, though. Care for the unborn, loving our LGBTQ neighbors, immigrants, the human trafficked, caring for the vulnerable, and on and on and on. Of course, it's easier to do nothing. Personally, honestly, I try to read a Christian history book every year and read the biographies of faithful, sacrificing Christians over the centuries to remind me that following Jesus costs. Stories of people like William Wilberforce and Elizabeth Elliot, John M. Perkins, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, John Hus, Corey Ten Boom, Jackie Robinson, and many, many others. I encourage you to do the same. Set yourself in the story of what God's been doing over the past 2,000 years, and remember that you are among what Hebrews calls the great cloud of witnesses. Live a big life. Give your life to big causes locally and globally. Do big things quietly with great love. What grips your heart? Start there. Where can you help make a change? Start there. Corporately, what are the issues in Charlestown? We have to start there. Corey Tim once wrote, "'The measure of a life, after all, "'is not its duration, but its donation.'" Number five, we need to make sure our service and acts of justice are actually helpful and God-honoring. I won't get into it today, but let me say this. It's gonna be, uh, I think, even a slide. Our church needs to be committed to relational justice, not transactional justice. We are aiming for shoulder-to-shoulder community, not face-to-face, treating people as neighbors, never as projects. Transactional service, where I give you something and you receive something over and over and over, can create this relief codependency that in some ways can rob people of human dignity. Rather, we want to do shoulder-to-shoulder justice, treating people as neighbors. Robert Lufton, uh, author of Toxic Charity, one of my favorite Christian Uh, writers and Christ followers, has given his life for community development in South Atlanta and created his oath of compassionate service that guides his organization. Honestly, this oath has guided much of our philosophy as a church over the last four years. I want to share it with you. He says this, One, never do for the poor or mistreated what they have or could have the capacity to do for themselves. Two, limit one-way giving to emergency situations. Three, strive to empower the economically vulnerable through employment lending and investing using grants sparingly to reinforce achievements for subordinate self-interest to the needs of those being served so much service is really just about ego stroking for ourselves and we've got to put that to death as a culture and as a community and we're going to model that and lead the way as a church next listen closely to those You seek to help, especially to what's not being said. Unspoken feelings may contain essential clues to effective service. And then finally, above all, do no harm. Honestly, we don't always get it right, but this is what we're aiming for and seeking to bring Charlestown together around the gospel, all of Charlestown, all of Charlestown. Number six, drilling down even more. We're going just a little deeper here. One of the great injustices of Boston is the inequities of generational wealth, networking, and the ability to do so. Getting college scholarships or finishing college while avoiding student loans, and then home ownership. Honestly, go see the stats of Boston America on white home ownership, white student loans, white uh, generational wealth versus people of color. It uh, is quite humbling. It's quite... um, eye-opening. As your pastor, this is the thing, frankly, that bothers me the most. The the stats are staggering. While I'm all for short-term efforts, uh, I think long-term goals rooted in Jeremiah 29 7, which says, seek the prosperity of the neighborhood where the Lord has put you, for in its prosperity you will find your prosperity. This is going to be our aim as a church. Coach Hugh Coleman and I talked about this the other day, and we talked about a lot of different stuff. It was fascinating to find the, the videos on uh, our church's YouTube channel. But we talked about gifts and giftedness in the church. Maybe you've thought about gifts like in terms of church and spiritual gifts, but the truth is God's gifted all of us in a myriad of ways to bring shalom to our community and our church. I want you to hear his perspective today regarding gifts in our church and using them with what he calls the boys, the young men on the Charlestown basketball team. You know, similar to the
1: way we learn in, like, in church uh, that we have gifts, that we have gifts, God's given us all gifts, and a lot of us don't know what that even means or what it looks like because maybe we don't see ourselves in that manner. but what, what I think about with everyone, now I'm always thinking about this life. You know some things that I don't know. You experience some things that I don't. And when it comes to the social justice piece, especially when you're talking black and white, when you're talking about, you know, even if we both grew up poor, there there are probably still some different conversations and some different things that you might have been exposed to that I wasn't. And so even that level of knowledge that you know, even if you were poor, even if you didn't you take advantage of those things, because we learn one thing that I've learned over the years, is that sometimes we take for granted what we have. Whether, like, uh, you know, whether we're spoiled or whether we're whether we're just entitled, whether we just even we, we, we know stuff, but we've never taught it, so we don't really practice it, so some things don't come to fruition, whatever it is. It could be about money. It could be, money, it could be about buying homes, it could be you know all this stuff, generational wealth, whatever it may be. And I feel like that's where I feel like a lot of, uh, like even let's say our church members, they have knowledge, they have experiences that a lot of the boys and this is where like one of the biggest things for me to connect the boys with the church Um, and uh, us making a relationship that just brought me back to when Coach O'Brien used to take us to church on Sunday. It was his way of trying to understand us more and our communities more um, and starting to really build a
0: relationship with the kids and how can he better serve them. Thank you Coach. Man, I love you. I'm so grateful for your perspective. I'm grateful for your friendship. I'm grateful for what you said in that moment. They're super powerful. Listen, specifically, I believe as a church, we need to begin to create a pipeline to come alongside young people of color, starting with our high school basketball players, and help them find opportunities to get to college, explore what majors and careers they could be passionate about, learn to build a resume have a job that allows them to make money without detracting from studies and character development while in high school, be exposed to networks that many of us take for granted, and one day buy a home and begin to build wealth they can pass along to their children. And during that process, I pray that these guys and and young ladies as well in the future will hear and receive the gospel, get baptized, grow in faith, live godly lives, avoid short-sighted, costly, sinful I pray the young men in our church would marry Christian women. I pray the teenage uh, females who visit our church. I pray for hope that she would grow up and marry a Christian man and and lead lives of kingdom influence. I I pray for them. The same thing I would pray for my boys, Noah and Owen. I believe believe that if we can empower and facilitate young men in our church like Dari and Garvance and Ricky and Stephen and others, including uh, teenage young women as well, uh, as they get into college and graduate and get careers and buy homes, perform weddings, dedicate their families. Maybe one day, I really believe we may even see some of these young men be the elders in our church, maybe pastor staff in our church. Maybe one of them is going to be the lead pastor of Christ Church Charlestown one day. If we see that, we will obey Micah 6.8, which calls us to do justly, to do justice, act humbly and Uh, and love and mercy. Walk humbly with our God even more number seven look we just created a new 02129 t-shirt i want you to buy one or two or ten i'll be honest and i want you to make a donation we're not even setting a price on if if you can buy it for a dollar if that's all you can give that's great if you can buy it for more that's it, great uh, we'll have them today at the after church meetup we'll have them in all sizes we even have kids ones every dollar that you give uh, toward these t-shirts is going to go to a student internship program where high schoolers are going to work with me and Cheila and with Nick to serve on Sundays and be disciple, learn about character, meet with other pastors and send Boston, hear from you. Look, I want these guys to hear from Carson on the entertainment world, from Barb and Jamie on the financial sector, from Mark on the tech tech industry, from Lana on small business ownership, and others in our church and law enforcement, healthcare and education and more. I need you, like they don't all need to just grow up to be pastors, Uh, I need you to help me show them the way forward in careers that they may not know would be open to them. I need us to help them learn to build a, ne- a resume and a network and even have some fun and make some memories together. This program's going to start this fall. My vision is to hire a senior, a junior, a sophomore, and a freshman and create this pipeline that could advance every year where they could be in this internship, hopefully all the way through high school. And we'll walk through open doors as God leads. It's an experiment. It's not some heavenly mandate written by God sort of handed down from Mount Sinai and stone. But I think it's a good experiment, honestly. I, I think if we can pay these young people and then, uh, get some really quality time with them and have them help serve along, alongside us in the church, I think that's a win and it's a start. And so buy a shirt. Um, we'll put it on social media. Buy a shirt. Let's, let's get rid of these and know that every dollar is going to go toward this residency. So last thing, what's your role? Your role is to lift people up. Keep listing your neighbors and do your part to lift someone up when you can. Examine your passions. Do justice locally on your street, broadly around the world where you can. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a story Jesus told, but the reality plays out every day. Every day is a gift with unique opportunities made just for you, just for that day. You never get a second chance at a one-time God-ordained moment. Who knows, if that story was real, maybe that Samaritan only happened to come by on that day. There's one moment. The Levite and the priest missed their one moment. The burning bush with Moses was a one-time moment. But God has a unique burning bush moment for you every day if our eyes are wide open. Do you see it? The Samaritan passing by and the man lying there half dead. It's a one-time moment. The Samaritan made the most of it. Make the most of the moment, God. The moments God puts before you. And, and church, let's, let's do that collectively. Why? Not so our church will grow. Not so our church will grow. Carl, uh, Carl Ellis Jr., a theologian, author, I've just recently become exposed to, has said, If we are Christian, we should be active in our cultures, not in the name of Christianityism or Christianity, but in the name of Christ. Make the most of the moment because you may never get it back. And because when you do it, the person you lift up and you yourself will never be the same. And finally, and here's the gospel, lift people up and make the most of your moment. Because this is how God has treated us in Christ. When sin, Satan, and self had beat us up and left us for dead, God saw us and came to us in Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us so that we could have relationship with God. Though our sin was not his fault in love and grace, Jesus made our sin his responsibility and died for us. Christopher Yuan has written, the main takeaway of this parable is not love your neighbor by trying hard to be like the good Samaritan, but rather love your neighbor by realizing you are the traveler. And Jesus, the good Samaritan, has loved you first. Let me pray for us. Father, we've heard a lot. Uh, I pray you're calling us to stuff. I pray that we would understand these are key moments. And this is a key moment in our culture, our community, our church, regarding racial uh, justice and biblical justice. But God, later, it'll maybe be around... Uh, Sex, or it may be uh, around sex and gender issues, or same sex attraction, or immigration. God, you, you allow us these moments and put these issues before us, uh, so that we can remember how you've come to us. And rather than beat us up or pass us up, you lifted us up. Lord has lifted up people. I pray we would lift up right now, Holy Spirit, will you burn onto our hearts what we should do, what we should say, what we should repent of. Maybe God, there, Um, patterns of and blind spots or maybe not blind spots we need to repent of or God maybe where we've been silent we we haven't been racist but we've been silent we need to begin to be anti-racist we haven't been anti-justice but God we need to uh we've been we've been passive and we need to be active Lord give us a passion and give us courage and boldness to come to uh, the broken situations that people have been beaten up by life. And Lord, help us to show compassion like you've shown us. For the one who's not a follower of Jesus, God, they turn from their sin today and trust you. Not just so that they can go to heaven, though. I mean, that's fantastic. But God, so that they would receive your care and mercy and so they can join you in the mission of what you're doing in the world. We love you, Jesus. Amen.